Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 16th of November, as we record. No reshuffle for us. We are sticking with the existing crack IC team rather than bringing back editors from days of yore. And we've got another packed agenda for you again today. It's been a good week for markets, but we're going to start on a sour note by looking at Diageo's profit warning last Friday. After that, we will turn to a couple of the stronger performers of recent days. That's British Land and Land Securities, both of whom reported interim results this week. And this week in the magazine, it's our annual Investment Trust special, complete with 24-page supplement. So we're going to be discussing some of the insights contained therein as well. Joining me to ponder all of this are of the line, Chris Akers. Hi, Dan. Hi, Chris. And Alex Newman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Alex. And in the studio, Mitchell Labiak. Hi, Dan. Val Cipriani. Hello, Dan. And Dave Baxter. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. We're going to start and get the bad news out the way early then, as I mentioned. Uh, Chris Diageo, a trading statement last Friday. They'd had some struggles with their US business over the summer, but the profit warning stemmed from a different source. Yeah, so that, as you mentioned, has not been a good week for Diageo. The shares fell about 12% after this surprise update where the company cut guidance. So net sales growth is now expected to slow in the first half of the new financial year. And this stems from some quite big issues in its Latin America and Caribbean markets, where net sales are forecast to fall by more than 20%. The company pointed to lower consumption and consumer downtrading in that market. And it's also struggling with getting inventory levels down to the right level there. And this also had an impact on operating profit uh, forecasts. So Guidance is now that operating profit growth will slow in the first half of the year and medium-term guidance was also cut. So not a surprise about the market reaction. On that note, the question is really whether this is just a blip or the start of something more serious. Uh, one analyst note I read said did say that 12% was an overreaction in the, the headline, but then it proceeded in the commentary to sound horrified at the, the context of what's happened uh, at Diageo. I mean, the company in, in recent years has talked a lot about the steps it's been taking to avoid this kind of problem, this overstocking issue, which has hit LATAM seemingly. It's been trying to move from, you know, what they say is a, a sell-in to a sell-out culture, which is effectively trying to sell more directly. So you avoid the kind of disintermediated problems of not knowing what kind of stocks your customers have and whether they've got too much or too little. Nonetheless, LATAM, the business there, does still seem quite disintermediated. And given six weeks ago, they didn't sound that worried about the region. Now, as you say, sales are going to be down 20% year on year in the six months to December. It does raise the question of how much visibility they do have there. What's your take on how serious this could be, how long it could take to unwind, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, the reaction has been quite mixed on, on that point. So management argues that this is an isolated incident and it remains a sellout, that the company remains a sellout culture. Analysts, as you mentioned, have been quite scathing. Bernstein said, why did alarm bells not ring much sooner and how did the situation get out of control? It's a pretty scathing there. Barclays, I uh, think the company's being a bit too pessimistic with the medium term guidance cuts um, and they're more positive on a, a bounce back for LASAM moving forwards. But it, yeah, it, it, is, it is clear that there are visibility issues with inventory in the region. 
the new chief executive, Deborah Crew, has pointed to more limited point of sale data in the region um, with less visibility over inventory at wholesalers and the retailers that they sell to. So that definitely has a big part to play. I think it's important to remember that the division was facing some pretty strong comparisons. So it grew about 20% in the first half of last year. Mm. It was also a relatively small part of the, of the whole business. It took around 11% of Diageo's total net sales um, in 2023. So that's something to bear in mind as well. Yeah, could potentially be a, notwithstanding the, the timing and the, the, the sudden update, you know, Deborah Crew, the new chief exec, relatively new management team. So maybe they're trying to, to kitchen sink to an extent. As you mentioned, this is just a, a relatively small part of the business, albeit one that has been growing quickly. And there, there was some better news in the update, at least over the US, which is 40% of sales still. Yeah, so, so North America is the actual biggest market and also its highest margin market. It's obviously a key part of the business. Um, the trading update mentioned that the company expects net sales growth in the first half of 2024, which is good news given issues raised um, about the US over the summer. And it said it's also aiming to maintain distributor inventory in line with historic levels. It also pointed to some green shoots around Christmas holiday spending in the US at the Capital Markets Day yesterday. So things are sounding pretty positive in North America. Yeah. What what came out of that Capital Markets Day? Was there much more, you know, much to add on, on top of the, the trading statement last week? What were they interested in? Yeah, so, so interestingly, there wasn't much more detail about um, the issues uh, at LATAM, which is what everyone was sort of focused on, obviously. Um, Deborah Crew said there are action steps being implemented to try and deal with the issues there, but that the market will have to wait until January and the interim results for a bit more detail. In terms of guidance, it reiterated the medium-term guidance set out um, in the trading update. But they are sort of uh, a bit more bullish on uh, expanding margins over the, lo- the long run as inflation continues to fall. And they're also going through a supply chain transformation program at the moment, which should help um, over the longer term with the margin. Alex, I don't know if you have any thoughts on Diageo as a company in general, or the short-term issues we've seen in the last few days. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this was clearly unexpected. I mean, let's not forget that Warren Buffett bought into the company early this year, apparently detecting traces of his favourite investment of all time, Coca-Cola. But I mean, the you know, just just to sort of take a step back at, at some of the reaction. I mean, I mean that that note that you alluded to earlier, Dan. I read through it as well. I mean, it's clear that analysts are quite shell-shocked at how the management team sounded when sort of discussing and sort of unveiling this this issue. So that's bad. And then at the Capital Markets Day, you know, the chief executive was saying, said it was difficult to predict when it's going to rebound, sort of bad again. You've got this kind of ugly situation where a very suddenly difficult operating environment seems has been compounded by what looked like a lack of control. And no clear roadmap out of the mess. Of course, we've got to put it in context, as, as we've been discussing, it's a small part of the business, but it's it's probably now a wider credibility issue for, you know, Diageo's internal controls that it wasn't able to sniff this out a little earlier. You know, and the result is we've got the shares where they were almost five years ago, which isn't, you know, is, isn't what you look for with a stock with high margins that's kind of meant to deliver very reliable GDP plus growth. That all said, I, I did want to just very quickly reflag something Bearbull wrote earlier this year about the company, which is that, you know, the clear weakness in the shares might start to attract rivals because the premium some of its peers in in the States are on 
are considerable, considerable, and the valuation of of, of a couple of its kind of comparable uh, rivals is, is is double that of Diageo's. I mean, Diageo is an enormous company to swallow, so we, we shouldn't get carried away about thinking that there's going to be a bid coming in. You know, even at this markdown price, the enterprise value is about hundred billion dollars, so you'd need a chunky premium to take the company out. But it, it, it does have you know, truly iconic brands in its stable. It's, uh, it's, its current price might therefore attract a bid for, for some of those. We have to wait and see. But um, but yeah, a bit of a mire that uh, the company finds itself um, in at present and uh, not especially clear how it's going to get out. Chris, what are your views on, on the prospects in some, uh, as Alex alluded to uh, or spoke about, you know, Bearbull has been uh, quite positive early this year. Uh, Phil Oakley, obviously, who writes for us as well, uh, does like Diageo historically too. How how do you see the the company, you know, going ahead? Yeah, so we're a hold on Diageo at the moment, which I think is the right position to be up to be in based on the latest updates. As Alex was saying, it obviously has the leading brand portfolio. Apart from LATAM, it still has some very good trading momentum across its other regions. As we're discussing positive news in the US as well. It's also more widely continuing to take advantage of premiumization, which is a key trend, and that's helping margins, has very strong pricing power. But of course, as Alex was saying, the share price performance hasn't been impressive, now back to the same point as five years ago. Um, so I think it's fair to say we've gotten less less bullish on Diageo over the last year or so, but I think holds is the right place to be at the moment. Yeah, I I, I am a bit uh, sceptical on, on them as well on some of these some of these shifts, and even in the US, where the, the signs have been a bit better, you know, I think you can see more competitive pressures coming through there. And, and even, you know, as a consumer, well, not quite staple, but as a consumer company, they've been putting for a lot of price rises, obviously, and that pricing power has come through. But you do wonder if they're going to have to give some of that back soon. But uh, yeah, I think that hold is fair currently, given the the strength the business has elsewhere and the, the potential for, for things like tequila, which is a strong area of growth in recent years to continue as well. We'll obviously keep close eyes on the company and uh, as it releases its scheduled and unscheduled perhaps updates uh, in future months. But we're going to turn to uh, companies of a different ilk now. Mitch, we're talking about British land and land securities here. Now, obviously, they've had a very tough time of it uh, over the past 18 months with all the issues we know regarding higher interest rates and the struggles of the property market. This week, though, things have been going very well, and that's not just because of the, the general sense of uh, positivity about uh, rates peaking. It's also because both companies put out interim results at the start of the week, and they were they were fairly decent, it's fair to say, in the context of where we've been and where we are now, at least. Yeah, in the context of that, that latter part is key. Yeah, I think... I'd, Better than expected is, is perhaps a good way of, of talking about it. I think a lot of that was to do with rental growth. Rental growth tends to track economic growth. So with economic growth being better than expected, i.e. flat, net rental income is better than expected, i.e. it's flat. Um, the company was obviously very keen to point out, you know, like for like rental income, which is slightly different for other reasons that we we might well get on to. And they were keen to sort of point out their leasing activity. You know, and they were saying that this leasing activity, because the rents that are coming in are higher than sort of the uh, the, the market rents, this is this is a very good thing. And this will mean rents increasing sort of going forward. And analysts are confident about this too. I'm a shade more sceptical only because... If we do tip into a recession, you might imagine sort of cancelled leases and all of those sort of under offer lettings that they're pointing to falling through. 
but for now at least things look uh, slightly better than predicted for both of them and what what have they been doing to you know protect their businesses or shore them up during this tougher time you know we can get on to the the potential you know peaking of rates and things like that in a moment but obviously things have been difficult for a while and they've been aware of that how have they been trying to protect the business as best they can yeah i think a, a big part of it is i mean a lot of property companies are doing this right now at the moment they they use this phrase they're recycling assets which is another way of saying we're going to sell the not very good stuff and we're going to buy good stuff mm. um so that's uh and and it's it's quite a risky thing to do but it's kind of the only thing you can do when your sort of asset values have fallen such that that increases your your gearing and REITs by their very nature are very sort of reliant on debt they're often sort of keeping an eye on that and um when you get that double whammy of sort of interest rates making your debt more of a question and also interest rates dragging down the value of the property that thereby sort of increases your leverage and also the leverage becomes more of a problem because interest rates are higher. So what a lot of companies have been doing in British land and land sector are no different is selling off the stock where they don't think they're going to see much rental increase and buying the stock where there will be higher rental increases. And the success of that has not come through yet in terms of a net rental income. In fact, because they've been net sellers, their net rental income is that's part of the reason why it's been flat. But they're sort of pointing to the fact that look, you know, we're moving more towards in Landsec's case, it's they're moving more towards the West End, where market data would imply that they're going to get sort of better rental returns and that's protecting their business. Whereas British land is um moving towards retail parks where there is sort of a fair amount of data to market data to back up that they can get rental returns there. In short, they're chasing better rental returns, but they're going at it in slightly different ways, which is somewhat interesting because the two companies are very much, in normal times, they're very much mirror images of each other. But at the moment, they're sort of diverging slightly. I don't want to overplay that point because they're still two very similar companies, but they are they are diverging. On the, the London note, you talked about Landsec and West End. British land earlier this year, there was a, a lot of attention or a decent amount of attention on the fact that uh, Meta had broken its London office lease. You know, seen as a bit of a canary in the coal mine for London offices. Like, oh, this big company no longer wants to, you know, have this this big space and British land has got to deal with it. Now, that did That will have a small impact on earnings per share this year. But it was quite interesting what they said this week about that British land they said that Meta had uh, found someone to take it from them, but British Land said, no, we want to do it ourselves, which in some, as they portray it at least, would be seen as a sign of confidence that they can get a better deal and that actually, you know, this is not necessarily a bad thing for them to be re-renting the, the place or releasing at this point. Yeah, I mean, we never know, what you know, how much of that is sort of mm. uh, jiggery-pokery to sort of, you know, get the market excited. We like to imagine that real estate investment trusts are much more sophisticated than people like us when we're buying or selling houses or renting a flat. But it is essentially the same thing, you know, that it's the whole thing of the estate agent coming around saying, oh, well, I've had five people look at the flat today, mm. so you better put an offer in soon. Um that said, British Land is a listed company, so I, you know, I imagine there's 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 a lot of truth in what they're saying. But what I suppose what I'm getting at is the proof will be in the pudding. Meta paid to to break that lease in in September. It's now November. Two months with you know that vacancy is 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 not world ending, especially if, as they say, you know, oh, there's there's competition for the space. But I think if no one is in that building by Christmas or if no one is rumoured or under offered to sort of take it in the trade press, 
yeah, I think we could we could start to ask some questions because Canary in the coal mines. I think that's a that's a fair analogy because the West End is seen as you know the, the most exciting part of the the London office market at the moment at a time when Canary Wharf is is not doing very well at all and the city is doing slightly better. The West End is seen as this very exciting place. So if they can't let a top of the range West End office, um, then that will raise questions. But yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, they certainly sounds like they can get a tenant in fairly sharpish and the market hasn't punished them for it too much yet. So, sure. so yeah, time will tell. The the retail park side of things, we've talked about that a little bit already, but that is quite interesting to me. The uh, occupancy rates there are pretty high. Uh, British Land, they even did a little investor update on them a few weeks ago because things are clearly going well enough that they can uh, focus on this. But, you know, as opposed to, you know, the high streets and the, even the shopping centres to an extent, it does seem that retail parks are where those kind of businesses want to be now. And, and that's working out quite well for, for British land at the moment. Yeah, it's it's somewhat surprising because it feels very 50s. So these these retail parks just give you an idea of, of what they're buying and what they what they own. Um, these are your sort of, yeah, they're out of town, enormous car parking spaces and then lots of sort of big shops. So think of next clearances. Um, where there used to be big W's, you know, back when uh, Woolworths is still trading, where you've got sort of a lot of supermarkets there now. This is what they're talking about. So they're quite old-fashioned entities, and they've been around since the, you know, for for a few decades now. They, They seemed almost kind of a bit outdated. But what sort of led to their revival, a large part of this, is it's tied in with online shopping. So they're this sort of, they've accidentally or perhaps because obviously when these things were built you know we did not know the internet the internet shopping would take off but they've accidentally become this very they've reinvented themselves as this sort of hybrid shopping model so you can go there to collect something which you've bought online they can also fulfill online orders you can you know shop there just as a as a as a human person as well so they sort of fit into this you know when we when there are questions around the popularity of online shopping and also questions around the sort of viability of the high street um these retail parks seem to be doing quite well quite emphasis on quite because once again it's it's all relative in the property market um they it's the only one of the, it's one of the only asset classes of theirs which has recorded a increase in value but that increase was 0.1% but even still at a time when the wider property market is still flailing a bit that's that's nothing to be sniffed at and as you say they are sort of fully occupied and they're able to negotiate rental increases on them yeah a kind of a shift to maybe the the US style as well obviously we've had them here for a long time but but they're big business in the US and maybe that's how our shopping will be done by human persons, as you uh, say, in, in future. I mean, British land sounds quite confident as well. I mean, I think they're currently 22% of the portfolio. Management can easily envisage, quote, that rising to, to a third. So, you know, they, they seem to be optimistic there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite remarkable because, as I say, there's not a huge number of differences between these two businesses. But to put, put that in perspective, so at the moment they own... 2.1 billion of these retail parks and they've got an 8.7 billion portfolio so as you say yeah that's around 23-24% they're okay with the idea of it going up to a quarter for a company that's typically been London office and um, all you know and is still heavily weighted towards London offices it's a big point of difference from Landsec Landsec does also have these assets you know it's not missed the boat entirely but it owns about 400 million of them 
in a 10.1 billion portfolio. So that's only 4.1% by contrast. So both in terms of sheer scale and as a percentage of its portfolio, British land is much more bullish on these uh, retail parks. And you can certainly see why. Um, the only, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just being overly sceptical. The only, the only question I'd have is whether this, a lot of this is is driven by a sort of trend at the moment, a trend towards, you know, this is the sort of shopping that we want to do. But if if there is another shift in the way we do online shopping, and we've seen many shifts in the way we do shopping in the last decade alone, we've gone from sort of bricks and mortar, but, you know, Hammerson having this very high share price, price because people love shopping centres to shopping centres and uh, high street sort of decimation to the rise of online shopping and all the excitement around warehouses and now towards retail parks. Um, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that there might be some other changes in consumer behaviour and changes in how we do shopping that that would affect the value. But that could just be me being overly uh, pessimistic because certainly in the short and medium term, they seem to be doing uh, quite well. I'm going to bring Alex in again now because as we spoke about at the top, Share prices have been going uh, gangbusters to an extent this week. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a very rate sensitive sector, and and every interest rate forecast change has a has a big impact on, on rates. But but you know, if well, a if we are getting to a stage where rates are peaking, could we see a bit more of a, a reassertion of fundamentals? And, and b Alex, how how do you view the respective business prospects at the moment? Uh, tricky one. The, I mean, the first, I'm going to probably have to pass on part A. I mean, the, the kind of the last, the story of the last couple of years has been for the REIT sector has been the difficulty of separating the, you know, the fundamentals that Mitch just, you know, outlined really well for the, 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 the two companies we've been talking about and the rate environment. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, in a way for land securities and British land, it's, it's not possible to say this week that it was, it was all, down to them and their, you know, their operational improvements that um, caused their share prices to go up 14 and 8% over the last five days. A, a big part is going to be sentiment. I mean, we, we, you know, the other part of that is let's not be, I suppose, too amnesiac in our, in our um, market uh, outlooks because a week ago, everyone was fretting about, you know, Fed hawkishness and we've had a couple of good inflation reports you know, we're, we're inevitably going to be back flipping to the other side in in a week or two. So it really comes down to fundamentals for um for these businesses because you know they can't change the weather of uh, of interest rates. You know, in in terms of the uh, the outlook, you know, Mark Allen, the the chief executive of Landsec, I was just looking through some of his commentary. I mean, he sounded he's so bullish on the West End. You know, saying that that's where businesses and people want to be. Occupancy there's you know pretty much full. And it just seems like, you know, it's such a stronger investment case than the city and a clearer investment case than the retail park, uh, high street dynamic, which is, you know, it, it, as, as Mitch was alluding to, it's it's, it's kind of hard to see where the wind's blowing there. But, you know, prime West End London real estate is, we can say, booming. It had a tough pandemic, but it's, it's now, it, you know, it's now looking a lot, lot stronger. So, you know, which of the two stocks looks better value relative to its prospects? You might say neither, you might say Shaftesbury Capital. Um, you know, they are pure play on the West End and uh, they've been, you know, they're, they're the experts in, in this field. Um, so, yeah, I kind of a pass on both uh, both questions there, Dan. Sorry, but um, 
but that's it's all right. That'll that'll do for me. I thought uh, you know there was some insight there. That's all we can ask for. I did give you the uh, the uh, the difficult question of you know when will we finally stop uh, focusing on interest rates? But the answer is probably never. Anyway, uh, we're going to turn from real estate investment trusts to investment trusts themselves. Now uh, our special this week. Um, we are going to effectively go through a whistle-stop tour of some of our features because there's a lot in print this week, in the supplement and in the main magazine as well. We've spoken a bit on the show in recent weeks about you know, the inevitable problems. I say inevitable because they haven't changed in recent months. The problems of discounts the investment trusts are on, or at least the fact that those discounts aren't closing and seem to be widening. So we're not going to dwell on that too much this time, nor will we talk too much about buybacks. But the first thing I wanted to talk about, Dave, was uh, gearing. And, you know, if we are potentially going for, you know, it's going to see better times ahead, as we all hope we are market-wise as well. It's perhaps no surprise there have been a few trusts this year who have been upping their gearing. At the same time, you know, these are fraught circumstances, so it's still quite a bold bet uh, at the same time. Yeah, it certainly seems like a, a bold bet. So we looked at the equity trusts that have kind of notably increased their gearing from September last year to September this year. And as you'd expect, you have a, a real mixture of different names in there. But I suppose one of the interesting trends you might pick out is you've seen a handful of UK equity trusts ramping up their gearing, especially a few names, including some BlackRock trusts, among others, whose gearing has really has really ramped up. I, I think that's especially interesting just because you know, small mid caps were hit so hard last year, but now you've had names like BlackRock, Throgmorton, um, their kind of levels have, have moved back up. So it is, yeah, it is one of those cases of perhaps the level of risk and reward and offer is quite high, but it's interesting to see those those managers kind of make those decisions. Um, and just to turn to one other name, the CT UK High Income Trust has uh, upped its gearing. And in one of their kind of updates, you know, the boards don't always explicitly discuss what they're doing with gearing, but they outline the fact that, you know, with rates potentially closer to being at a peak and in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank crisis earlier this year, they felt there was a really interesting opportunity to kind of use gearing to add to their holdings and financials. I should say for those who don't know that gearing is effectively the process of uh, leveraging up your portfolio. So when things are going well, your returns are going to be increased, but vice versa as well, hence the level of risk. And there is some risk in, in doing so at uh, difficult times. We are now going to briefly talk about discounts because, Val, one thing we, we mentioned uh, in the supplement this week is the the interesting fortunes of private equity. And in some ways, it looks like a rare bright spot when you consider the, the change in those discounts this year. But in others, that is due to one factor in particular. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so basically most of the sectors in the investment trust world, as we know, have seen their discounts go up again from September last year to roughly September this year. And when you look at the private equity data, it is a bit of an exception because actually uh, the, the average discount seems to be closing by, by quite a lot. A lot of it uh, is because of one trust, which is 3i Group. That's a very big trust. It's got 18.6 billion in assets. And as such, it kind of like skews the numbers quite a bit, actually for the whole investment trust sector and even more obviously for, for just private equity. 3i has been performing very well because its basically main asset is Action Group, which is this Dutch discount retailer that has just been performing really, really strongly. And so this trust is a, is a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a special kind of case within the sector. And yeah, that's why it's been doing so well. 
but there's sort of some good news for the other trusts in the sector as well. And here we maybe should say that it's just the private equity sector and not necessarily growth capital as well, which is sort of a bit of a different story. But within private equity, both the direct funds, so the ones that invest directly in private equity assets and the sort of funds of funds, which have some sort of secondary exposure to to other private equity funds, have been doing quite okay. With, and I have seen the discounts sort of close a little bit. There's probably a few different reasons for that. On one hand, the NAV performance has been doing actually quite okay. It has held up considering that Obviously, it's also a sector where interest rates are not necessarily great news. So maybe the impact has not been as bad as maybe some some people had expected. And then the other thing that we should probably take into account is that the starting point from last year was really, really very low. So discounts were very wide. So obviously, it kind of sort of makes sense that they would they would start closing a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, at the start of this year, there was, as you say, that all that concern about how rates would affect private asset valuations. And for a lot of these trusts, those those falls haven't materialised to the extent that the, the discounts might have suggested that they, they might. So there has been some, if not progress there, then at least a, a staving off or an avoidance of a, um, that worst case scenario. Right, moving on again very quickly. Another feature we have, income, Dave, the income portfolios. Uh, now, we have these every year, but I just wanted for, for this very brief uh, mini segment to, to maybe look at you know, how these portfolios have been constructed this year. Effectively, we try and, uh, or our contributors try and provide two, well, they do provide two portfolios uh, of income-generating trusts, income-generating assets. And there's a slight discrepancy there at the moment because, of course, on the one hand, a lot of people are looking at bonds nowadays, but there aren't really too many of those in the investment trust space. So really, it comes down to whether you're backing the bombed-out equity investment trusts or the bombed-out alternative (laughs) trusts. And, And... We've had kind of a, a splitting of the ways there, perhaps, with our two contributors. Yeah, it's kind of a, a case of pick your pick your different bargain, I guess. But um, yeah, as you mentioned, David Little, one of our specialists, he takes more of a, perhaps more an old school kind of equity income focused approach. So he has some names like Murray International, the Global Income Fund, some UK income funds, some Asia plays. And then he does have a bit of kind of infrastructure and, and debt and, and so on. And interestingly, some multi-asset names like uh, Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, which had a strategic review recently and then decided they're going to plough on doing things as they are. But the market has not really liked that trust for, for quite a long time. James Carthew, our other specialist, he has taken a much more alternatives-focused approach. What really struck me when he was kind of outlining his portfolio this year is just how especially bombed out his selections are. So we have names like GCP Infrastructure Investments, um, Next Energy Solar, Tritax Eurobox. But a lot of these names are on something like 40% discounts and, and really high yields. Of course, the question is, do they stay cheap and what is the catalyst for, for things to get better? But um, that'll be an interesting one to watch in the next 12 months. Yeah, you can find uh, all the details of those portfolios in the magazine. For the final section, though, I'm going to, it's almost a microcosm of this whistle-stop tour because, Alex, it is the, the whistle-stop tour of the world, uh, around the world in eight investment trusts as, uh, as the big feature. You know, as, as that suggests, you look across the investment trust universe, you look at the Z scores and pick out some that are particularly attractive combined with recent share price performance as well. And maybe you could just say a little bit about that process, but also I was interested in the UK trust you uh, picked out this year, which 
just to be annoying, I'm going to say we, we shouldn't necessarily name, we shall try and whet the appetites and let people uh, pick up the magazine, but, but it has quite an interesting approach to UK equities that has worked really well this year. Yeah, no, and yeah, I, I promise I will uh, not reveal anything. Um, I just in in terms of the format, I mean, it's it's now quite a well-worn format. This uh, around the world in eight investment trusts, obviously ba- based on the um, the nineteenth uh, century novel of 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 uh, the similar name by Jules Verne. Um, it it's kind of a this sort of globe-hopping screening of the sector. Um, it is aimed to do a couple of things. We try and pick out. I'm sorry to return to the subject of discounts, but we are looking, as you alluded to, with the, the Z score stocks that are trading on two factors one their z score which shows how cheap they are relative to their trading history based on their discount the second factor based on their their recent trading momentum so what, what that's 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 one of the things we sort of hope to achieve with the, the feature the, the second is kind of highlighting the 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 real diversity of the investment trust universe so you know, if you want exposure to fast-growing Indian manufacturing picked by stock pickers, uh, you know, based in in India or Korean technology or a private European credit or asymmetric bets on U.S. Treasuries by, you know, uh, one of the smartest uh, New York hedge funds out there, it's all available in the investment trust world. And 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 yeah, so so that's that's how it works. We pick out eight investment trusts, as the, as the title alludes to. And it does include two UK trusts, um, as mentioned. So the unnamed uh, UK uh, trust, you know, you highlighted and, and in the piece, it, it did kind of blow me away how under the radar some of the some of these trusts have gone. You know, the UK growth fund that the screen identified, really interesting situation. It's fairly liquid. But currently trading about a third below its disclosed NAV, which I think in reality is actually a fair bit higher already because it has been on the end of seven or eight takeover bids, including some of its largest holdings in a portfolio of forty or so small caps. I mean that that is a that is a hit rate, which you know there's few fund managers out there are, are ever going to achieve uh in, in a given year and no one's really sort of talking about it the the fund itself seems quite bad at talking about it as well um uh but that's just a that's just a function of of, of some trusts marketing and size that they you know they may be not so good at crying about their uh successes but you know in terms of takeovers there are lots of ways both simple and technical of working out if a fund manager or stock picker is good at their job as, as far as blunt measures go though i think this is um, pretty good. And it means that the trust is racking up the cash from premium bids. Shares are going sideways. Doesn't really make sense to me, but I'm glad the screen picked up on this one. Yeah, indeed. I hope I haven't uh, infuriated too many listeners by, by uh, having us hype up this uh, portfolio <laughs> without saying what it is, because it, it is really interesting. But uh, uh, as I say, that is in print and, and you know maybe it'll be a fun guessing game as well. And if you find the whole thing very frustrating, you can just email me and I'll probably tell you. <laughs> anyway... That brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you very much to all the contributors. Thank you to Chris. Thank you to Alex, to Dave, to Val, to Mitch, and to our producer, Maddie Apthorpe. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 